Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Jamie Lewis. Thank you for growing with us. of how dirty restaurants are I mean I think a lot of people would think that their bathroom is the dirtiest place in their home but it's actually the kitchen kitchen your kitchen kids I know it's gross so sponges I don't know yeah no yeah. it's the worst, it's the worst. <laughs> and you're you also someone who's like taught serve safe classes and like so it's there's a lot I enjoy eating out all the time I think it's better for your immune system makes you stronger tough and there you go I agree I like that yeah association is going to call me now I'm kidding (laughs) okay if you don't use a sponge what do you use I know it's weird but I use I have these uh downy towels that I use and I use those to wipe and then I have a um like a scrubber okay that the top comes off of it. And I'm a little bit obsessive and I change it like every couple of days in the dishwasher and then replace it. It's one of those, I'm also really big on sustainability so I can use it over and over again, but I wash in the dishwasher. Yeah. I let go of sponges a while ago. I like things I can wash too. So I'll use, that's true. I'll use a cloth or something I can wash or sterilize right in the dishwasher, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is filthy kids. Don't worry. <laughs> Everything. Um, all right. Since you brought up sustainability, I have to, and, and I know you said we could do a whole thing on packaging, but I feel like one of the rubs in this industry is, is packaging in general, but, but I, I just want to ask specifically about recycling. I, it kills me to have these glass jars. I, I know. And I mean, they're empty. There's nothing in them. And I can't take them back to my local dispensary to be reused. Like, what's the problem? All of it, all of it is, is, what do we do? How do we fix it? What's I mean, if we ultimately got into the packaging based off of fear, it was all based off of fear, I can tell you, because again, I was one of the people at the table for why child resistant packaging came into play was that you have consumable product that is attractive to children, right? But ultimately we advocated that if you have a strong education process in place to educate the consumer on proper storage of these edibles similar to alcohol, Mm. really is not the business owner's responsibility on what happens in terms of the parent not being able to keep it out of the hands of their children in terms of the fact that if the consumer is educated that this should not be kept around children, similar to alcohol, right? Why is it then, do we need such strong and strict medicinal-like packaging? And the obvious point that I've always come back to is that we are talking about a product that in any known quantity of form is non-toxic to humans. So regardless of the effects of it, which are still sad and should never happen, I I have always advocated that there was not a real need for child-resistant packaging. And that along the lines is why we have some of the, now the industry has gone over and beyond with just over-packaging and excessive in the sense that a glass jar for an eighth of flour for a consumer to throw away that's crazy to me. I mean, it's thick glass. It's I, not even like thin. I'm really cautious about what I purchased in, in retail. So I hate to say it. And a lot of times I'll make the choice to buy something that's more sustainable in packaging. So pre-rolls, as much as I love them, 
That mm. dupe tube is ridiculous. It's a one use and gone. Yeah, you're right. And maybe we keep one or two of them for our, we don't keep the arsenal of to which we consume. Exactly. Exactly. So again, why can't we just take those tubes back? I just well, don't get it. I did a little bit of work and I, I can't speak too fully to like why we don't have strong recycling programs, but there's a lot of stuff that has to be set up at the state level and a place for these products to be taken to, to be recycled. So I think that there is some sort of relation between those. And I think a lot of it too, and what I've been advocating for is consumers and the industry really need to start working with legislators to go back and rework some of these packaging requirements because now we can readdress them because mm -hmm. a lot of the packaging requirements were not from a health and safety. They were from a fear and overreaction, which you know I think that that specific, we can go back and readdress, especially now that we are all going to openly admit that climate change is a real thing. So now that we're regardless of who's causing it or it what's causing matter. it, who cares anymore? We just got to address it. You can't be in denial anymore. So I think now, and, and a lot of the conversations I've been having too, is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can go back and readdress, but packaging and the sustainability around packaging. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make it any less of a safe product if it's packaged in a more sustainable packaging for the environment. And I think there's a lot of industries that are tackling with packaging. I mean, in agriculture and cereal boxes and, you know, like soda bottles. I don't even think, I think everyone is aware that we got to do something about packaging. And as a consumer, I'm extremely cautious of it. Yeah. And the one place that I'm the most frustrated is it's almost like you're in 2022 in any grocery store. And then you're in the 1980s when you step into a dispensary, because it's like these like tricked out packages with these mm. layers to them and I think that you know a lot of us forget too as an industry that you know doing a lot of legislative work requires a lot of off hours but it's hugely important for our bottom line I mean the amount of money we would save on being able to go to simpler packaging that's true especially for a lot of smaller operations that's true so do you see then new states that are coming online maybe not having the same packaging requirements because they've learned from states before and they've gotten past that fear. Let me put that on my list to make sure that I'm involved and in we need to make sure that the new states don't. There you go. <laughs> no, I'm not sure because it is, you know, what does seem to be in print seems to be copied <laughs> and reworked in certain ways, but really the best changes have come from the voices of the industry, industry yeah. advocating for it, educating legislators. So um, I guess there's some work we got to do on that packaging this session, huh? Everybody yeah, their so. states, make their calls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we what, is, yeah. what is one area of education that you think is, has the biggest need for the consumer that's a great question. And I was just, wow, that's a really, I'm going to, I'm going to go off of what I was just recently yelling about. Um, I think now the consumer needs to be educated on all the different processes that cannabis as a whole is creating. We have CBD, we have hemp, mm. we now have Delta eight and other synthetic forms of cannabis that could potentially be produced and sold, which is, you know, weird. So it's like, I think there needs to be an education around, you know, um, 
getting back to the basics around what exactly cannabis is. And I think a lot of us as an industry have forgotten that because so much of it became what you're mentioning, the regulatory process. How do we regulate it? What do the rules look like? But um, a lot of us in the beginning stages who owned retails educated the consumer on the very basics of what the testing meant on the back of the packaging mm. and how best to guide that. So I think maybe that would be the one, and I'm only saying that because I sit on the East Coast and there's a lot of people confused around what's regulated, what isn't regulated, what is cannabis and what is hemp? What is hemp being sold as cannabis? What is Delta 8 and what is- I don't know what Delta 8 is. I don't, yeah. What is it? Case in point. Humans taking their little mini mitts and fucking with mother nature is really what it is. Uh, Synthetic. Can we start this now? I was having a conversation with some lawyers. Can we just call it synthetic cannabis? Because anything that's man-made is synthetic. Yeah. So technically that's acid to a base made by a man is synthetic. Why do we even need synthetic cannabis? Cannabis is a weed and it grows anywhere and everywhere just fine and has so many benefits not just medicinally, but like even to the environment, the potential benefits. Why I, get away from that? I think the consumer needs to be educated on the differences for that very reason. What mm-hmm. is what is it that you're looking to consume and why, right? And you should be able to make that choice being off the information that you're be, you've been given. And I can tell you as someone who definitely keeps an eye on the new emerging markets, you have states that are openly distributing hemp flour and Delta 8 as cannabis products. No. So consumers are now referring to that as cannabis. That has to stop. Your Seriously? Heart sinking every time that happens. Why would a dispensary even consider Not selling Delta 8? We're talking about the states that don't necessarily have a regulated cannabis process. No medical, no recreational, but CBD is oh. So there should be an education around the different various, some sort of a a separation because, you know, I ask consumers where they purchase product, if they're consuming it and they're holding up a vape cart, that's a Delta eight and they're referring to it as a THC product. Yeah, I know. Interesting. We got to help on that one too. That's, that's my, how do we do that? How do you, how do we break through to consumers? Do you think? Um, I think that a lot of it has to come through social media, unfortunately, that rolls the world. Yeah. So business owner operators and those who advocate and have social media pages and who do blogs and who do all that stuff, maybe that helps to filter it out. But I constantly feel like a broken record. You know, that's synthetic that you're smoking that. That's synthetic. That's not. So it's like, I feel like the educator constantly. It's a different tone when you cross the Mississippi, but cannabis has been regulated and understood and respected at a different level. So I find Mm. that there's a a distinct difference between the two coasts. If you were purchasing Delta 8 in California in a regulated market or somewhere around that, it would say it on the label and you would be disclosed that or know that. But I don't think consumers in Virginia Beach openly know that they're not smoking cannabis, but a synthetic form of hemp, really, you know, taken. Wow. Okay, well, I just learned something. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever get past THC? Yes. And, yes, okay. Yes, yes, I do. I do. I feel like 
all cool things take place in California and it's already happened. <laughs> so I'm biased, of course, California kid, but yeah, I mean, we've been having Terp conversations. I've, I love my apples and bananas and that's one of the lowest testing out. Like, I just think that that in turn is also an education. And I can say in Massachusetts up until about a year and a half ago, Terps weren't even on the menu. And then I got teary eyed when they showed up and it's a conversation. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Only because we've seen it in other markets. And I'm a true believer in the fact that for all of us diehards that have been doing it long before it's been regulated, we would shop for specific strains before mm. we even knew testing results matter, right? Like if you remember back in the day when you were getting it, it was always you found a certain strain you liked and it was how it made you feel. Yeah. And that needs to be explained more to the consumer that. A high THC strain isn't necessarily going to get you more bang for your buck, but smoke it and then see if another different THC percentage, you know, it's just, I do think that it, it will change, but a lot of the consumers early on that were shopping in the regulated market were a lot newer than some that held on to the illicit market a little longer because it was a pricing situation. Yeah. And more of the snobby consumers that come into the regulated market, the more they'll force that. I hope so. Yeah. I want, you know, we're not just going to have wine snobs. We're going to have weed snobs, right? I mean, none of us who have been consuming cannabis ever, ever up until getting into the regulated medical industry said, hey, what's the THC percentage on that? None of us. It no. was always, what does it smell like? What does it look like? Yep. How did it make me feel? Exactly. Those are the three classics that no executive who has ever understood or smoked cannabis would ever get. And that is what makes some of us really good at our job is it is ultimately there's an art in growing it and preserving the smell, the look and the effect of it. So, yeah, absolutely. I think we'll get there. And I mean, and it's hard to capture or, or to quantify the aesthetic Right. I mean, it's, it's easy to look at a number and say, oh, it's 20% or it's 30% THC. And, you know, as dumb humans, we think more is better um, with everything. Um, but, you know, if, if I just think about food and think about you, I'm like, God, it must drive you crazy that, you know, like as a foodie, and, and I would consider myself a foodie and, and a wine snob, is that, you know, I, yeah, I'm looking for the way something taste and, and that, that initial, you know, um, the way it looks, because that's the first thing you notice, the first thing you observe, right. Whether it's something you want to eat or not. Um, and, and then how it makes you feel afterwards, <laughs> like, do I feel heavy or bloated or do I feel light and happy? Um, I mean, I just feel like even from your own perspective as a chef, like that must even drive you even more crazy a little bit. <laughs> it really does in the sense of that. I think it's most, misrespected in the edible side of things, right? Mm. Like so much of it is all the same product being sold, uh, uh, same category. It's all a gummy or a chocolate or a, but yeah, the frustration around educating investors on why a good quality cultivation companies, this would be a good one to invest in when you can't quantify the land race genetics they have access to or 
the quality of the chirp profiles that they have. That I think to me is the most frustrating that the very value and appreciation that all of us have for the consuming of this product is most neglected at that outsider opinion and look, because you can't put it on a spreadsheet. You can put a yield, you can put two strains together. And regardless of quality, if one yields more than the other, if an executive is making decision off of finance, there's no quality conversation to be had. Mm. But I do think that will be the distinct difference between those that can grow less for a higher price point versus those that have to grow volume. So it's yeah. just, what is your business plan and ultimate, what are you ultimately looking to, to be successful in? But yeah, that's, it's, it's really hard to like have a respect for so much of what we do. We can, we love consuming cannabis and really good cannabis, but unless you're a cannabis consumer, you really wouldn't understand the importance of a really good turf profile and the look of a luscious bud. Like mm -hmm. you explain that the snap and smell. Exactly. The snap and smell. Um, <laughs> the bend and snap. It was 16 different ways we prefer to smoke a joint with our friends, right? Like, 16. <laughs> All the different ways. Yeah. You know, a question dawns on me when you're, when you are cooking with cannabis, whatever it is, I mean, do those tastes and smells translate to what you're producing? So like if you had like a, a cheesy versus a lemony sort of a, a strain would, would, would those features come out in, in the I, edible I mean, you make? Great question. In a can of butter, most definitely. In a whole plant extraction process that's not done through carbon, gas, or a liquid-like process. Absolutely. Like, and that I ultimately think is why can of butter went away, was because it was flavorful. It tasted like really. Can. Yeah, I mean, early on, and well, I can say that we used can of butter. A lot of us held on to it and then oil became mass produced in Colorado. Crude oil became reasonably priced and it's a better way to control, you know, metrics and volume. It's a more consistent way to do manufacturing, but it, it's also flavorless unless you choose to add terps, keep terps, BHO obviously preserves terps, but yeah. Cause I'm just saying like, if you made like a lemon candy, would you not be benefited by using like a lemon haze strain or something? And most that do extractions off of CO2 or any sort of oil or gas form, they would, or liquid or gas form, they would be introducing those terps back in. And yeah, some companies do. Uh, there's some really great rosin edibles right now on the market that taste very strain specific hmm. because that's still preserved by the whole plant press process. Yeah. Like, those I love. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I, I made rosin edibles and they were, I loved making them. They were, I called them like a wine candy is what I would refer to them as because it's, you know, it's very much the, the connection between terps and wine for me are very similar. So I found those to be sort of an educated palette, if you will, people who did enjoy the blueberry for the blueberry on the DJ short side. Right. And yeah, it's almost like a, a chew or a fruit chew. There's a lot of fun to be had with the, with the, the flavors in cannabis. And I think a lot of that was forced on me early on the banana nut recipe. I put a little bit of ginger in it to counter Ooh. the cannabis, the, the really pungent sort of grassy flavor that the cannabis butter provided. Um, 
but the can of butter flavor never really bothered me, but yeah, it went to a flavorless process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you brought up wine and I was thinking, God, you know, like I'd love to pair like a late harvest wine with maybe like a, a cannabis chocolate that had like a, a cheesy strain infused with it and have like that chocolate cheese with like that sweet wine. Oh my God, that'd be so delicious. Yeah. Where's that? Oh, like right now, right? That's Do we I'm, have that right now? Can I find that somewhere? I mean, we're going to make it. I mean, we can do whatever we want. We can that up. I'm going to hire you to make it because I am not a baker. I'm a cook, but not a baker. We just have to make it. We'll have a separate show where we consume it and let the kick it and talk about how the <laughs> That sounds fun. I'm ready for that. Um, um what has been the most exciting or momentous win for cannabis since you've been in this industry? Ooh, you're asking a girl who's been through a a few of them. I know. I know. Was there a game changer? Yeah. For me personally, someone who operated well, I mean, for those of us that remember what it was like to operate during the Bush era. And for those of us that were operating when we really were running the risk of doing 10 years hard time for a hundred plants, right? I think for me, the, the most important moment for cannabis and the acknowledgement of it actually becoming a really regulated and authentic industry was when the coal memo was introduced to us and they were not going to enforce or put any more money towards the DEA enforcement towards cannabis in regulated states. I hung it on my wall. I mean, there was a sea of emails that I still kept from various owners. Like just, is this real? Is this really happening? And there were a few other things, you know, the Forfeiture Act coming down and the inability to seize assets prior to being proven guilty. But that I think for us in the cannabis industry was was acknowledgement that we actually were pushing this movement in the right direction. Yeah. Why was the Bush industry so hell-bent against the cannabis industry? Do you know? (laughs) I feel like a lawyer asking you to answer a question that... uh... No, that's a really, (laughs) that's a deep, deep question. But a lot of it spins from the amount of money that is made off of keeping drugs illegal in terms of the interactions that happen. And, you know, Drug Policy Alliance and Ethan Nadelman wrote a really good book Um, around, um, I can't think of the title of it, but it discusses the whole international drug trade and the money machine that it actually is. But yeah, ultimately Bush was of an old school mind too with Nancy Reagan, not too far behind that getting for, you know, the DARE program, which we all went through. Um, The miseducation, the propaganda around it being more valuable as an illegal drug than a legal drug, I think was a huge deficit deficit to all of us in the United States, but yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cole memo. It feels like so long ago now. I mean, like literally how- I had to take a minute. I was like, because there's been so many things that have, I mean, New York going legal, California going legal, Colorado, but I think that for me, it was acknowledgement from the federal government. Cause that was always something for us who had been doing this a little longer than the cool kids joined, right? For all of mm-hmm. us fits, it was always us running the risk of going to jail, losing our families and losing money and all of that and being ashamed for being arrested and all. So that 
it allowed me to hold my head a little bit higher. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So as we're kind of winding down here, um, tell us about cold water consulting. What do you do and, and how, how are you helping the industry through, through this business? I started cold water about five years ago um, after leaving one of my companies that I'd set up and established. And I ultimately started it because I wanted to be involved in multiple startups in a way that I could help and advise. And as crazy as that sounds, I truly love the rigorous and painful process of birthing a company literally is what you do. You are creating a child that you then have to raise. But I, about five years ago, created Coldwater and Coldwater specifically focuses on owner operators who are seeking to build business plans and models and go out and raise investment. And then those that are looking to set up operations. And I really come in as an executive and a team member and get them boots on the ground running and get an operation set up. Um, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. And I think ultimately for me, I'm always constantly re-inspired by the teams that choose to mm. work with me and bring me into their complete chaos and trust me to be a part of their team in a way that I, I just find it hugely beneficial. I, I'm glutton for punishment and I love startups. <laughs> what type of operations specifically? So my last projects have all been vertically integrated projects, believe it or not, but mo- the last wow. big projects, and, and I deal with rather large projects. So these projects are soup to nuts. I'm managing everything from construction, build out, all the way through programming and design schematic. I'm reviewing plans. Um, wow. And then are fairly early on and in very beginning stages with Jersey and New York, where they're just establishing operations. A lot of it is at the local level. I've spent a lot of time. I could probably be a zoning attorney at this point. Um, a lot of the work that I do with Coldwater is strictly on the operations side. And it's really working with companies to either seek capital or get to a place where they can do that or anything involved in the operations all the way through to getting their facilities set up with hiring and training. Wow. Um, Yeah. I really like doing the startup, creating it, and then actually pulling it all together. And to date, I have close to 15 that I've set up and ran that are still in operations today, which is quite a feat in this industry. So do you continue to advise them once they're in operations or is the plan that you set them up so well with their best team and the, you know, that they never need you again? No, it's that if they never need me again, they don't want to work with me. (laughs) Our work is never done. Is it never done? Never done. I couldn't get rid of them if I tried. I think that (laughs) I wouldn't want to either. I think that there's such a great love that you put into something that you build very beginning that you never fully let it go. So yeah, I have lots of herds out there in the industry that I, that I'm closely associated with. And I'm just like a part of their team in the sense that I really come in as a solution driven person. And a lot of it is, is that as an old goat, I've, I've provided a lot of calm in the sense of there's Mm. nothing freak out about guys. They dropped the coal memo a long time ago. We're okay. We're going to get through this. this <laughs> you don't have to worry about the fed rating your facility in, yeah. in a year. Yeah. yeah. What States have you set up businesses in? Oh, to date I'm at about 11. Um, okay. but most of the ones that have gone through and have emerged. So there's Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, Jersey, 
uh, some of the older ones, California, Washington, Oregon, uh, Nevada. I was very actively involved early on. Hmm. In my beginning years, you know, I was owner operator and setting them up um, and was actively involved in the founding of, of a few companies. And then those would either merge over into other states. So that brought me across the Mississippi to Massachusetts, where I've set up about three companies out here today. Which of those states are the easiest or hardest? None of them are easy. And they all provide their own very difficult layers of love and hate. But I can say that for those that are listening, it is very specific per state, which is more favorable per license type. So certain states are more favorable for edibles versus cultivation versus retail. I think that when you dive really deep into it, the opportunities for owner operators at a, at a multi-state level are a lot further along than I think a lot of people think they are. But, you know, for edibles manufacturers, there's some decent opportunities on the East Coast. I definitely feel that. You know, I was at the cannabis conference in Las Vegas last week, and um, one of the statistics is that cultivation operations that are greater than 80,000 square feet have increased by 11% in the last five years, and facilities that are less than 5,000 square feet have decreased by that same percentage. What do you think that means for the industry as, as these facilities and operations are getting bigger and less crafty? I actually see that statistic as something that's um, not a not a bad thing in the sense that I never found it to be very productive or from an ROI cost perspective to build out a facility on the cultivation side for anything less than 20,000 square feet, if that makes sense, because oh. it's expensive. But with that said, looking at that number, I think that it doesn't necessarily show that that the boutique style of, of cultivating is going away. It just shows that we are becoming much more of an established industry with a much larger demand to feed. Mm. I see it as the market trying to meet the demand, which means the demand is potentially growing. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So last question for you. Shoot. <laughs> Excited. What, is it gonna be? <laughs> what does cannabis crave? Oh yeah, this is such a great question. You know, I think ultimately like with everything that we've been talking about, the one thing that I think cannabis ultimately craves from us, right? That's how I'm viewing this. Yeah. Is the simple respect of her being a plant. I think that a lot of what I have noticed over these past five years has been a complete separation from the holistic wellness and the natural attributes that this plant provides. And I think a lot of that is coming from, you know, just the conversations we've just been having around synthetic versus natural cannabis and the conversation around trying to force the plant to do things that it doesn't need to do. So. When I say respect, I mean, ultimately respecting it as a plant and treating it as such. So if you want to increase the yields of specific strains, don't water down the genetics of the plant to get better yields. Respect how that plant and that genetic as a land race genetic needs to be grown. And maybe sustainability should be a part of your practices moving forward. And I say that around the 
the business aspects of it a lot of times too, because a lot of times what I'm trying to explain to operators is that it's not just a bottom line. It's a combination of various different things that are going to affect the product to the consumer. And a lot of that is washed down and not thought about in the various systems that you put in and recycled watering systems that you may not think you can afford or need to use. But I, I think a lot of it, we're getting away from the very basics of just respecting the cannabis plant for what it is and treating it as such, instead of trying to alter it into other things that meet our business plan or our bottom line better. Because what I'm seeing is a miseducation around what Delta 8 is or a tremendous amount of watered down genetics out here that have virtually no effect, but a high THC percentage. Wow. So I think for me, I would like to see it go back to a more holistic. Let's let's respect our lady plant if we could. She is beautiful the way she is, and she doesn't need to change for you men's. <laughs> the lipstick on her, and she doesn't need to wear heels. She is beautiful the way she is. And I, I, I think that's what I mean by respect. We just need to respect her for what she is. I like that answer. I like that answer a lot. Question, man. Such a great question. That's probably one of the better questions I've been asked, sister. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, Yeah. you're welcome. Thank you. Um, Well, I have just a few off off the record. I didn't uh, pre-prepare these rapid fire questions for you. So just one or two sentence answers. If you if you want to add more, go ahead. But they're just meant to be fun and quick. Okay. Okay. Number one. Nervous. Is the cannabis plant an introvert or an extrovert? (gasps) Oh, gee, wow. She's definitely an introvert. Yeah. She don't need nobody. (laughs) Leave her alone at home with a good book. (laughs) Yeah. But I hate to say that she's an introvert because I've grown her for so long that I know she is affected by her sisters in the garden. Mm. So it's like, that was a tough question for me, but I've always viewed them as sort of statute, single, strong, independent ladies on their own. So yeah. I'm going introvert, done. She's okay, an introvert. got it. <laughs> what is the worst or best advice you've ever been given around the cannabis plant? Oh, the best advice I've ever been given about the cannabis plant is um, I was consoling in a friend about losing one of my, my dear companies that I had birthed myself and, and that it was so much a piece of me that I thought that, you know, I was done with the cannabis industry. And the best advice he gave to me was, you know, if it is something you truly love, then you're not done with it. And he referred to a Charles Burkowski poem that I now cite often, find something that you love and let it kill you slowly. So I think ultimately mm-hmm. that was the best advice that that was given to me early on by a lawyer friend of mine. Um, and I don't think he knew how grueling this was going to be, but this is probably for those of you that are just getting into it, will be one of the hardest things you've ever done. And the failure to success rate is, is, is pretty high in terms of failure. So there's a lot of hits that I've taken through the years. And the one thing that I keep telling myself is every time I get back up, it's, you know, I love what I do and I will forever be successful. And, you know, I'm letting it slowly kill me anyways. Why not? Yeah. Nice. Nice. It's, it's so great to have 
those people in our lives who know exactly what to say, when to say them to keep us moving forward. All right, last question. If you could build a menu around cannabis, you have a restaurant and it's a cannabis restaurant. I don't know. You built a menu around cannabis. What would it look like? How many courses would it be? Small, so small. Okay. And you would come in. So the restaurant would be a 22 to 36 seat restaurant. You would have no choice over what you were served. It would be chef's menu and it would be the classic douchey bougie, the amuse bouche. Amuse bouche. <laughs> all the way through the palate cleanse. But my style of cooking would be in the form of the neo style of cooking. I hate to say it, but that small sort of morsel bites that really pack a punch. Okay. Um, so they would be small dishes and it may be something like a, a 12 course sort of thing where you come in, you sit down, you shut up. I serve you a beautiful meal and you have nothing to complain about or ask for. It's the perfect, perfect. And it would, it would have some sort of a, a hearty sort of steak element on the entree side. And then a definitely like a floral sort of, I would play a lot around with the herbs, natural herbs with cannabis. Mm. So, yeah. Does cannabis pair well with a steak? I, I never thought about that. I love steak. So I do I too. Cannabis and why not? Why not? I feel like it would, it would in the sense that you would do like a sort of herbed butter, maybe with yeah. some added in there. I mean, I feel like a diesel is just a given, but is that just me? Because I do the diesel with everything. I don't know. Like I really like rosemary, right. And butter with, um, with steak. So I'm trying to think like what could be sort of not equivalent, but sort of similar to that. Like, and how would you do that? I mean, would you take this, uh, a stem, um, from a cannabis plant or the actual leaves or flower and infuse it. Uh, I think what I would do is infuse some sort of a butter or, um, some sort of a sauce for it. So everything would have that like lame sort of layer of like 17 hours of a sauce on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I would do a solid food highlighted with an element of cannabis. So it'd be like a fish, a beautiful piece of fish beautiful piece of steak or like, and then you'd have your veg for the vegans out there. Love y'all very much. I respect it all. For all my sustainability <laughs> talk, I grew up on a farm, solid steak. Um, but I think that, you know, I would pair it with, um, cause to me, cannabis, even though there's some of those diesel cheesies, there's a lot of floral aspects to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe like a fruit salad right now, it's warm, do like a little watermelon cheese kind of salad. Mm. Um, with some sort of a, a gelato or like some sort of a cakey, like floral kind of palette. I, yeah, I would, I would certainly try to do it with groups or categories to end it heavy. Now I'm thinking way too much about it, but yeah. I, would you pair it with what, what kind of beverage? Would it be wine, beer, a liquor, a cocktail? I mean, you know, I'm very, very honest in the sense that I am not opposed to those that consume cannabis and drink. I would never pair menus to combine them with alcohol. Okay. So be non-alcoholic um, beverages, um, but I would serve alcohol absolutely for those that would like to consume with their meals and would like to. But I think that with having such a terpy balance with cannabis, that if you were to add alcohol or even wine into that, that would create a different sort of power. Yeah, you wouldn't even need that. Yeah. I would send it if you ordered something off the wine. Can I have a club soda? 
Yes, you can. You with can a sprig of cannabis in it. <laughs> I went into this restaurant once in San Diego with a chef who controlled it that way. And I loved it. I loved the idea of <laughs> what he was doing. He got tired of customers trying to change his entrees. He was like, these are perfect the way they are. So he doesn't, he doesn't allow him to do anything. You sit down, you don't even get to see the menu until the food is presented in front of you. I like that. Wow. I have a lot of picky friends too. So I just don't want them coming in and asking for specific things. <laughs> Trust me. I'm the chef. Yeah. Well, Jamie, um, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope it was fun. I had so much fun with you. This was, this was good. It was, um, it was so much fun to have a free flowing, engaging conversation around the true love that we both share for cannabis. I mean, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, very much. absolutely. Um, well, Hopefully we can do this again because I think we could totally dive into many other topics or or into some of these topics we we touched on today, um, and and I hope I get to meet you in person sooner than later. Well, I'm going to look for you now, so okay, we have to run into each other. <laughs> I'll find you. <laughs> find you. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. Have a have a great night in Massachusetts and. Hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope it was good. It was awesome. All right. We'll talk later. Thanks.